Even in the biblical books describing destruction, what is expressed again and again is the absolute ability of human beings to avert the disaster predicted by the prophets. And this means that even when the prophets' predictions of destruction do come to pass, nevertheless the themes of freedom and change remain central to the story, teaching us thereby that even terrible events can be followed by something better. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 151, The Prophet versus the Oracle. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of oracles and agency, predictions and prophecy. In our discussion of Saul some months ago, we made reference to the witches of Shakespeare, who informed Macbeth, a Scottish warrior with the noble title Thane of Glam, that he will also become Thane of Cawdor and ultimately King of Scotland. The witches then disappear and Macbeth is suddenly informed that King Duncan has made him Thane of Cawdor as well. Macbeth takes this as confirmation of the witch's prophecy, and that he is also meant, therefore, to be king. But, he wonders, should he wait to ascend the throne, just as he was made Thane of Cawdor through no actions of his own? Or is he supposed to seize the throne by committing regicide? As Professor Emma Smith has argued, at the heart of Macbeth's story is questions regarding freedom, agency, and fate. In the pagan, non-monotheistic world in which Macbeth is set, is it the witch's predictions that is bringing everything about, or are events impacted by the free choice of Macbeth himself? Professor Smith sharpens this point with a reference to a very funny article written in the 1940s in The New Yorker by James Thurber, in which Thurber describes meeting a woman who was obsessed with reading mysteries and attempting to solve them before she got to the end. Then, when she read a play by Shakespeare, she couldn't deal with the fact that Shakespeare tells us right from the get-go who did the deed. It was Macbeth who committed the murder. Thurber writes, quote, Tell me, I said, did you read Macbeth? I had to read it, she said. There wasn't a scrap of anything else to read in the whole room. Did you like it, I asked? No, I did not, she said decisively. In the first place, I don't think for a moment that Macbeth did it. I looked at her blankly. Did what, I asked? I don't think for a moment that he killed the king, she said. I don't think the Macbeth woman was mixed up in it either. You suspect them the most, of course, but those are the ones that are never guilty or shouldn't be anyway. I'm afraid I began that I... But don't you see, said the American lady, it would spoil everything if you could figure out right away who did it. Shakespeare was far too smart for that. I've read that people never have figured out Hamlet, so it isn't likely Shakespeare would have made Macbeth as simple as it seems. I thought this over while I filled my pipe. Who do you suspect, I asked suddenly. Macduff, she said promptly. Good God, I whispered softly. Oh, Macduff did it all right, said the murder specialist. Hercule Poirot would have got him easily. How did you figure it out? I demanded. Well, she said, I didn't right away. At first I suspected Banquo. And then, of course, he was the second person killed. That was good right in there, that part. The person you suspect of the first murder should always be the second victim. Is that so? I murmured. Oh, yes, said my informant. They have to keep surprising you. Well, after the second murder, I didn't know who the killer was for a while. How about Malcolm and Donald Bay and the King's sons? I asked. As I remember it, they fled right after the first murder. That looks suspicious. Too suspicious, said the American lady, much too suspicious. When they flee, they're never guilty. You can count on that. I believe I said I'll have a brandy and I summon the waiter. End quote. Now, as Smith explains, there's a deeper meaning to this humorous piece. And that is, as she argues, that actually Shakespeare is indeed presenting us with a sort of whodunit. But whereas the mystery writer seeks a whodunit in the style of, say, the old board game Clue, who did the act and how, Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the drawing room, For Shakespeare, we know at the beginning who did the act. It was Macbeth at the urging of his wife, with the knife in King Duncan's bedroom. The question of who done it is much more metaphysical. 
The witches are known as the weird sisters, weird with a Y, which refers to fate. The question, as Smith notes, that Shakespeare is raising is, does Macbeth have freedom and agency in this story? Smith's reflections are indeed a fascinating analysis of Shakespeare's tragedy, but it also highlights how the pagan notion of tragedy and fate is un-Jewish. We often speak of Jeremiah predicting doom and destruction, but what the prophet actually emphasizes is that Israel is able to repent and thereby to ensure that what he is predicting will not actually come to be. And this, ladies and gentlemen, tells us something profound about the Jewish approach to prophecy, prediction, and human freedom itself. We have seen how Jeremiah warns Israel of the fact that the temple will not protect them, and that what occurred to the tabernacle at Shiloh could befall the temple in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is described by the Bible as issuing these declarations during the reign of several kings. Thus, as Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, sits on the throne, he pronounces the prediction of the destruction of the temple before those assembled on the Temple Mount. And many of the people seek to kill Jeremiah for saying such a horrifying thing. Jeremiah responds that disaster is in no way guaranteed. And Jeremiah is suddenly supported by some members of the crowd who note other moments where prophetic predictions were averted. Chapter 27, verse 12. Then spoke Jeremiah unto all the princes and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that ye have heard. Therefore now, amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent the evil that he hath pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and right unto you. But know ye for certain that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets, This man is not worthy to die, for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morashtite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord God and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus, Jeremiah's life is saved by elders that point out that in the past, prophets have warned of destructions yet to come, but repentance has averted that very same destruction. At this moment in the text, an aspect of prophecy is made more clear. If a prophet predicts catastrophe, then what is described need not come. Repentance can prevent the prophecy from coming true. In the next chapter, Jeremiah adds another fascinating detail which is that if a prophet predicts a beneficial event, then it must absolutely take place, or the prophet is proven to be false. Chapter 28 takes us to the reign of the last king of Judah, Zedekiah. Then, too, Jeremiah predicts destruction, not only in word but in symbolic action, wearing upon himself a yoke in order to depict the exile and subjugation yet to come. He is opposed by Hananiah, who falsely claims a prophetic guarantee that the yoke of Babylon will be shattered and Jerusalem saved. Chapter 28. And it came to pass the same year in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah in the fourth year, and in the fifth month, that Hananiah the son of Azor the prophet, which was of Givon, spoke unto me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. 
Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Yehonia, the son of Yehoiah, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. In other words, Jeremiah predicts that the rebellion of King Zedekiah against Nebuchadnezzar will be successful, and that ultimately the previous king, who had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar into exile, will return. Jeremiah replies in verse 6, The prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, the Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied, to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. Nevertheless, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. The prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. In other words, only a positive prediction from a prophet must occur. If it does not, then the prophet is revealed to be false. A description of something terrible, however, can be averted. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs puts it this way, quote, Jeremiah makes a fundamental distinction between good news and bad. It is easy to prophesy disaster. If the prophecy comes true, then you have spoken the truth. If it does not, then you can say God relented and forgave. A negative prophecy cannot be refuted, but a positive one can. If the good foreseen comes to pass, then the prophecy is true. If it does not, then you cannot say God changed his mind because God does not retract from a promise he has made of good or peace or return, end quote. Jeremiah's explanation of prophecy thus serves as a foundational source for something that Rabbi Sachs has emphasized throughout his writings, and that is that there is no Hebrew word paralleling the description of the literary genre tragedy, one so central to Greek drama. Our own biblical stories, as Rabbi Sachs points out, contains prophets such as Jonah, whose prediction of the destruction of the Assyrian city of Nineveh is undone by Nineveh's repentance. And we Jews, as he further notes, do not have stories like Oedipus, in which all the attempts taken to avert the Greek oracle's prediction that Oedipus will kill his father and marry his mother only ensures that this terrible event actually takes place. And while the role of freedom and agency in Shakespeare's tragedies will continue to be debated by literary scholars, tragedies, they remain. But Jews have no such description of tragedy for our own biblical stories. And indeed, modern Hebrew had to resort to the word tragedia for the genre. For even in the biblical books describing destruction, what is expressed again and again is the absolute ability of human beings to avert the disaster predicted by the prophets. And this means that even when the prophets' predictions of destruction do come to pass, nevertheless, the themes of freedom and change remain central to the story teaching us thereby that even terrible events can be followed by something better. This is why Rabbi Sachs stresses, in ways that we will see both today and tomorrow, that Jeremiah, so often seen as the prophet of doom, is actually a prophet of hope. From Jeremiah's words about prophecy, Rabbi Sachs writes, the following conclusions can be drawn. Quote, A prophet is not an oracle. A prophecy is not a prediction. Precisely because Judaism believes in free will, the human future can never be unfailingly predicted. People are capable of change. God forgives. As we say in our prayers on the High Holy Days, prayer, penitence, and charity avert the evil decree. There is no decree that cannot be revoked. A prophet does not foretell. He warns. 
A prophet does not speak to predict future catastrophe, but rather to avert it. If a prediction comes true, it has succeeded. If a prophecy comes true, it has failed. The second consequence, Rabbi Sachs continues, is no less far-reaching. The real test of prophecy is not bad news, but good. Calamity, catastrophe, disaster prove nothing. Anyone can foretell these things without risking his reputation or authority. It is only by the realization of a positive vision that prophecy is put to the test. So it was with Israel's prophets. They were realists, not optimists. They warned of the dangers that lay ahead, but they were also, without exception, agents of hope. They could see beyond the catastrophe to the consolation. That is the test of a true prophet. End quote. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremiah gives us a story that is not akin to a Greek or a Shakespearean tragedy. When I was in London attending a performance of Ian McKellen in King Lear, I noticed during the intermission a t-shirt in the gift shop that said something on it like, everyone dies, and then going on to list all the deaths that take place in Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, and other tragic plays. The age of Jeremiah has much death and destruction, but hope remains the emphasis. Hope that is all the more inspiring in the face of the challenging times in which this hope is expressed. That is Jeremiah's message in these chapters. And tomorrow we shall see this very same hope expressed in one of the most revolutionary passages in the entire Tanakh. This is Meir Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning that passage with you tomorrow, signing off.